Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 113 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, veteran, retired law enforcement officer, and mental health counselor Vic Dufley joins the show to talk about how his unique experience helps him support veterans in their search for mental health and wellness. If someone ingrains a negative thought or aspect and they believe it to be true, even if it's not true, it is true. And it'll have that negative effect on them and they'll carry it until they get to challenge that reality validly that someone tells them, is that really the case? You know, should that have been said? Should that have been done? I had an individual give me an absolute nightmare scenario of a cascading series of horrific events that happened to him one very bad day uh, in uh, uh, the Hobo Woods in Vietnam. Every decision he made made sense on the face of it. There was nothing that you could point at that was a wrong call, and yet every one of them moved him closer and closer and closer to being completely out of control and in a state of disaster. The fact that he survived was a miracle. I said, listen, What you just described to me, if I was training a team, I never would have done that because it was an impossible set of circumstances for you to overcome. There is no way for you to win that. So the fact that you won that is a miracle. The fact that you're still here is a miracle. And I'm glad you're here. You're not a coward. You're not useless. You did what you had to do to survive in a circumstance you never should have been in. And you continue to serve. It's all honorable and good. Let's let's go from there. For 40 some odd years, the guy thought he was a coward. And uh, no, not only no, but hell no. Before we kick off the interview, I'd like to bring you a quick message from Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given Hour, about an event that's coming up June 9th through the 15th. I'm Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. We want everyone to join us the second week of June for a week to change direction and the Change Direction Jam. Together, we're changing the culture of mental health. Events during the week can happen anywhere and everywhere. We're so excited to work with IBM to create this global discussion. Mark your calendar, register, and join us to Change Direction. Go to changedirection.org. That's changedirection.org to learn more. Here at Headspace and Timing, we'll be joining Given Hour during that week. The podcast episode that week will be with Dr. Van Dalen, and that week's blog post is going to focus on the campaign to change direction. Longtime listeners will know that our mission is to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health, and the campaign to change direction is doing exactly that. Make sure to check them out at changedirection.org. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. (music) 
If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. As always, we really appreciate you taking your time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, you know that I'm uh, a little partial to mental health professionals who have previous military experience, uh, like myself. Uh, but my guest today, um, Vic Dufoli, has has a little bit more than just uh, the military background. He spent six years, almost six years, in the military uh, in the Cold War. Uh, so we'll definitely get into that. But then 21 years on the police force in Connecticut and now is entering into a third stage of that as a mental health professional in Connecticut. So, um, Vic, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dwayne. Yeah, certainly. I, I really appreciate uh, reaching out. A, a mutual friend of ours, Amy Otzel, um, connected us. And uh, and then just hearing your story and, and, and connecting with you a little bit before this, um, I, I was really encouraged to kind of bring you on. Um, so before we get into what you're doing now as a mental health professional, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. Um uh, I grew, I was born in 1960, I'm 58 years old, so I'm, you know, an obsolete weapon system at this stage, but uh, the second year of my undergrad, I ran out of money, and uh, while floundering around, I ended up in the Guard, and I did just under three years with the Mass Guard, I started as a uh, straight leg infantryman, and then uh, had an NCO friend that was in the ROTC program with me uh, prevail upon me, and I became uh, an, an artilleryman. And uh, finished out my time as the uh, fire support officer to the 26th Cav, a non-branch qualified second lieutenant filling a captain slot. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And uh, then I was given the opportunity to go on active duty uh, again as an infantryman. Um, wasn't on my dream sheet. The Army, in its wisdom, knew that that was my secret heart's desire. And uh, after Benning and jump school, they sent me to Germany. And I was with the 1st Battalion, 30th Infantry, in the 3rd ID. Uh, we started with 113s. We transitioned to Bradley's, the original M2. Um, during that period, uh, I had three significant events happen that uh, caused USERA-wide messages. One, uh, I was borrowing the commander's track at one point, and I had a heat of core blowout and jet a 2-inch gout of flame onto one of the ammo crates in the uh, troop compartment, and the halon bottles didn't put it out. The uh, master gunner for the company put it out with the portable because he didn't want to burn up his track. Uh, my One of my squad tracks at Vilsec sank because it failed the dip test, and the FMC rep said, no, it's good to go. Your crew made an error. Let them swim back out. And I had six visiting Italian officers on board, and that went to the bottom of the pond and had to be recovered. 
and it hadn't been sub hand receipted yet. So I was still signed for it. And I figured I'd be paying that off for the rest of my life. But I think the most significant and fun one was uh, in my platoon, when we transitioned to the Bradley, uh, my first squad leader, kind of a dodgy character, a lot of fun. And he came sliding up to me one day and he said, sir, my gunner has developed a shooting technique that you really should look at. And uh, the gunner had been with the 82nd for Granada and uh, hated the Bradley, did not like mounted at all, couldn't wait to go back to the light fighting folks. But he was one of the most conscientious junior NCOs you ever found. And he developed his own gunnery technique that was not what the manual said. And after sitting in the Yukoft with him, I said, you know what, this works great. It works a lot better than what we've been doing. I called a platoon meeting and put the whole platoon on the kid's system. And my platoon uh, shot the highest transitional gunnery scores in the 3rd Infantry Division, lit up the board. We were head and shoulders by everybody else because of this kid. Colonel came running out of the tower all excited because of what we'd done and said, Lieutenant, how did you do that? And I explained. And then he locked my heels and told me I'd invalidated the entire training program, uh, canceled the award that I put in for the kid and his squad leader for bringing it to our attention, and a year later wrote an article in Infantry Magazine claiming credit for it. It was an interesting time. I had two border tours, uh, border augmentation tours, uh, when the 3rd of the 7th Cav went to gunnery. So I got to go inside the 1K zone and see what goes on on the border. Uh, kind of gives you the real reason that you deploy for things like that. Uh, an amazing border system. I walked 173 kilometers of what was then an East German border, looking at border defenses that were set up to keep people in rather than trying to keep us out. And that told me everything I really needed to know about what was going on on the other side of the fence. Uh, towards the end of uh, <laughs> our tour, uh, Graham Rudman hit. I had my plane tickets in hand to come home, and they got canceled, and they extended us six months. And then uh, I was baptized uh, into an intel officer, and uh, after the intel advance course, sent to Fort Drum for 10th Mountain. And I pulled the plug shortly after that for active duty. And uh, did six more inactive while I was starting my cop career. So I had like 15 in a uniform of one kind or another, military-wise, and then the 21 years behind the badge. Yeah, that's uh, it's always interesting for me to hear. I did two tours in Germany, as I think I might have mentioned. Um, and uh, Vilsack is, is still swallowing up tanks and... Uh, um, and trucks and stuff like that. That's, that's absolutely still happening. Um, but, but the idea, you, you hit on a couple of things that are very pertinent to veterans today, uh, getting screwed over by their leadership, right? You know, this, this idea of, I mean, it, and it doesn't surprise me. And I think all the veterans listening to this would say, well, of course, you know, this officer did that and blah, blah, blah. But there's a sense of betrayal, um, that goes along with, um, you know, just not receiving credit. And you were trying to give credit to the, the young kid, right? Absolutely. You know, and, and not even, you know, carry it for yourself. Um, but also it just, you know, how dangerous it was in, um, in the, during the cold war. Uh, I, I did a, a little bit of research one time and I think in 1981, there was something like, um, you know, 1800, 2000 active duty deaths in the military, um, where there were only like, you know, seven or 800 or something like that, um, during 2010. And we had two conflicts going on in 2010. There was nothing going on in 81, but 
there wasn't really the safety officers and the the things like that. And so there was um, when when people think about veterans and they think about combat veterans and they say the danger that Vietnam veterans and Gulf War veterans. Um, but that was you were in the military at a time where things were shifting leadership wise, but it was also it was pretty dangerous. Well, you're right about the slot that I was in. I was very fortunate that when I started in the guard, almost all of the senior NCOs and company and early field grade officers that I was exposed to were Vietnam vets. And you want to learn about ambush techniques, uh, go out with a, uh, a recon platoon that's all had service in Vietnam. In one afternoon, they can give you an education that will just peel your eyelids back for, boy, have I got a lot to learn. Um, that was universal. The, the artillery unit that I served with in the guard, the operations sergeant and the battalion commander had both been crew chiefs in Vietnam on adjoining tubes. So they spoke a language and had a degree of understanding with each other that was phenomenal to watch when we deployed. We passed an external RTEP uh, when they came down. We were a nuclear-capable National Guard battery. Um, good people. Good people doing hard stuff. They were... Uh, there was a lot of things where they were closer to Kelly's heroes than probably what the Joint Chiefs wished, but they got the job done because they understood the job, what was real and what was really real. Right. And so, you know, you, you leave and then you get to Fort Drum. And I, I know I've got a couple of my soldiers that are still stationed at Fort Drum. Fort Drum will make anybody get out of the Army. Um, so, so you left, but you left the, the military and you went into the police force. And this is still something that, that we see today. I think three or four of my former soldiers are, you know, state patrol or firefighters or things. And so it is, it's natural now. Um, it was natural when you did, it was natural when my father did it. He left Vietnam, um, got out of Fort Leonard Wood, which is another base that causes people to get out of the military. Uh, and he became a city cop in St. Louis, um, in the mid seventies. So, so I, I'm interested to hear why leaving from the military to the police force. Okay, well, uh, it was bad boss syndrome. Uh, people leave organizations because of the boss, usually. Not, you know, Drum, I thought was a beautiful post. Uh, St. Lawrence Seaway, watching the salmon come in, that run. There's a wonderful aspect of nature there. Uh, dr when you shovel your driveway... And you have to, it's like the Golden Gate Bridge. By the time you get to the end, you got to restart at the beginning. The lake effect snow will make a believer out of you. But I worked with great people. I learned a lot of good stuff. I uh, decided to pull the pin rather than, uh, let me back up. When I first transitioned to Intel, the battalion XO pulled me into his office for a meeting. And he said, Vic, you got to watch out because uh, Intel field grades eat their young. And I thought it was just because I was leaving the infantry and, you know, there was some branch stuff going on. I didn't realize how true that was until I got to drum and saw some ugly stuff and said, you know what? I don't need this for the rest of my career, however long it's going to be. So I pulled the plug and walked away. Uh, the, the culminating aspect was when the G2 said something that I really wish I could remember what exactly it was he said, but it was the final straw. And I folded up my planner, put it down, and started walking towards him in our staff meeting, room full of officers. And the sergeant major looked up, did a double take, dropped his planner, bear hugged me, picked me up off the ground, 
and walk me backwards out of the room, whispering in my ear, I can't let you do it, sir. You're the only good one I got. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how true that was, but I, it was enough to keep me from doing anything really stupid. But two weeks later, I was off active duty. Uh, while a counterintel officer, uh, part of our, my job at DRUM was interfacing with FBI and the Royal Canadian Mounted across the border. I had some thoughts about working with the FBI. I took the test and initially missed the selection by three-tenths of a point on the first test. So got out anyway, said, well, I'll take the test again. I'll figure out something while it's coming on. And while I was setting up a local bank account uh, in the town I ended up working in, the head clerk at the bank uh, had been a German national. Her husband had served in Germany. She looked at me and saw a soldier and steered me towards, his hu towards her husband, uh, who turned out to be the deputy chief. And after an interview with him, he handed me an application and said, fill this out right now. And uh, they hired me early ahead of the academy just to make sure I didn't go to any of the other cities and towns that were going to hire off that list. I still thought it was going to be a temporary thing, but I kept bouncing around and uh, I passed the test for the FBI, spent a year waiting for them to call. They never called me. And I finally said, you know what, I've been here a long time. Uh, I might as well stay here. This is evidently where I've taken root. So uh, patrol officer, uh, firearms instructor, senior firearms instructor, armorer, uh, all the extra duties they can throw at you. I, I picked up some dare time, um, working with the kids just to change things up some. Uh, and that's where I met the social worker and started getting uh, her view on what was going on for current conflict stuff and how the social worker community wanted to reach out, but felt divided because they didn't have a common culture or language to work with the population they wanted to. And uh, after floundering around with it, I got promoted to sergeant eventually. I was a patrol supervisor, one of two for the midnight shift. And uh, at the 21-year mark, uh, I said, you know what, this isn't going to go anywhere further that for me here but I'd been working on uh, second masters for clinical mental health. So I retired figuring the doors would open eventually. Uh, uh, Part-time SWAT team, uh, on-call sniper entry, uh, hostage negotiator at the end when I was too slow to pass the Cooper test, uh, whatever it took, you know, small town policing, you do what you have to do and you fill the jobs best way you can. See, and I've, I've often said that, uh, of course, we are having a national discussion around veteran mental health. As you've mentioned, the social worker that you connected with uh, during the D.A.R.E. program was talking about the current conflicts, and this was as you were reaching the end of your career. Um, but we're not necessarily having a national conversation around first responder mental health. Um, yeah. and, and working on the police force as long as you did, I'd be interested to hear about um, maybe the similarities or the differences between the, the law enforcement mindset, the service member mindset when it comes to mental health? Oh, I think in both cases, you have um, the tendency to view anyone asking for help as showing a sign of weakness. That is a flaw in the culture that we haven't identified that people who ask for help are showing good sense and strength because it takes a lot to reach out and say, hey, I'm having trouble packing my gear right now. I need a hand. And uh, whether you're looking at, you know, a troop that's on a, a road march and all of a sudden it's got heat exhaustion 
and he needs a little extra today than he might have needed yesterday or he might need tomorrow, you help him on that day, you get him to where you need to go. Um, first responders, uh, police, fire, EMS, long history of uh, the black humor in the face of unthinkable ugliness that you have to deal with uh, just as a way to cope. And then the inappropriate coping mechanisms that runs rife through that. I mean, cops with multiple divorces, uh, drinking problems for firemen, EMS that are all wrapped around the axle for the ones that they couldn't save. I mean, every discipline has their own demons that prey on them. And learning the safe places to reach out and that it does not diminish you when you admit you've got something going on that you really need help with, um, in fact, it helps maintain you so you can do the job longer. Uh, the real focus for me, I think, as a leader is trying to get things done with people who don't think they can do them and raising the bar for what's possible. My thoughts as a budding clinician at this stage of my career development is that if there's any way the people that still do the jobs that I used to do, I can help them get over a hurdle, around an obstacle, whatever it takes, that they can survive in a toxic environment, maybe a little better than they would have if they hadn't reached out for help, then I'm still serving the professions that I hold dear. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate that. And is uh, before we had started, you and I were talking, and I had mentioned um, the interesting course of three separate careers. Right, you had your military career, then you had your law enforcement career. Now you're emerging into a third career as a clinical mental health professional. But you mentioned you see them all as one. I do. Um, I was privileged uh, when I went initially on active duty to have a very hard scrabble platoon sergeant um, who told me point out his job was to get me promoted and not to let me screw up his platoon too much. And uh, I was with him for 13 months. We had a great machine uh, and he brought me along nicely. Uh, I was fortunate in the guard. I'd had a couple of master sergeants that started knocking off some of the, the high spots so that he had something to work with. Uh, but I learned early on that the leadership that I impart, I didn't have to be the best at anything. I just had to recognize the best in what was around me and help facilitate it, help it do what, you know, find the NCOs that do this job best and supplant them, make them focused on the success they can, minimize weaknesses, maximize strengths, and work as a team. Um, I did that, and then I became a staff puke at the 10th Mountain and found out that it was still kind of the same, but you weren't defending an objective or taking one. You were doing the throughput of information and materials that the operators needed to go do their thing. So I had guys, uh, brilliant warrants, brilliant senior NCOs that could do great product, but they needed somebody to cover their back so they could do what needed to be done. And I kind of became that guy for them. Uh, and felt it was a privilege to do so. Uh, when I got into law enforcement, um, of course, everybody has an idea about what being a cop is until you go be a cop, and you find out it's something completely different. It's, it's not really a social worker with a gun, but 
if you don't learn how to talk to people and work through the problems that brought them to your attention, that got them to need some help beyond what they could be capable of dealing with, if you're a one-trick pony that can only talk to a, a operator of a car through a driver's window, and that's all you've got, no one's ever going to talk to you. You're never really going to find out what's going on in the community. So being able to talk to people, being the face that they recognize, being somebody that they wanted to pull aside, and having them know that if they reached out to you, there was something that you could do. Or even if there was nothing that you could do, you'd rattle every door in, until you came back with the information about why there was nothing that could be done. Um, I had a, a very small town, um, small population, less than 23,000. Uh, I traveled every inch and foot of it, doing different stuff over that time, learned a lot about the population. And uh, a cop once said that a, a badge is sort of like having a uh, universal key to an elevator that goes up in a high rise. You get to see every level of strata up and down. Uh, from the very best penthouse views down to the sub-basement. And uh, that was pretty much true for me. Um, my last couple of years in, uh, we had a new recruit come on board that had done a year in Afghanistan with 10th Mountain, oddly enough. And uh, young, rugged infantryman, nice kid. And uh, we talked a little bit. And he found out I was in this grad program. And he came to me and shaking my head, shaking his head, and said, "You know, Sarge, uh, you're going to be miserable when you go to this thing." And I said, "Well, why is that?" And he says, "Well, it's going to be all pity party stuff. You're going to get guys who were on a fob and heard a mortar land a click away, and they're going to claim PTSD, and it's going to be miserable, and blah blah blah." And, you know, he, he kind of ran off on the, you know, the the infantry point of view. And when he got all through, I said, "Well, you got to understand something. You're an infantryman." You're trained to fight. That's your existence for being. And anybody that's stupid enough to step up and announce themselves as a valid target to you receives all of your training, all of the focus of the indirect fire you can bring, the direct fire you can bring, to you actually standing over them if it comes down to that. You'll do it because that's what you're trained and you go out and look to do. I said, but not everybody in the Army does it. You're the smallest tip of the spear. Everything that goes on behind you to get you there, all the payroll folks, all the people that are chicken chow and transpo and all the stuff that goes into getting you there, they have a job too. But their job is not your job. It's just something they might have to do with less prep. So if you're telling me that somebody on a fob was distressed by an inclination of disaster more than it deserved, based on their training, it may have rattled their cage more than it would have yours because of the training you received. And he said, well, you know, I never really thought about it like that. And I says, well, look at the jobs that people do. Focus on that and then go from there. And uh, I finished up the degree, went to the vet um, center in uh, New Haven, and I was privileged to have a couple dozen all-combat vets going back to World War II as my initial client list. And it was an honor every day to go in and learn from people who had done what was needed to be done in every aspect of history going back to the 40s. Uh, you, you sit in on a group therapy session with World War II and Korean vets talking about their experiences, 
And then you go up every conflict post that and you hear more similarities than you hear disparity going on because the elements of the job really don't change, just the tools do. And not everybody had the benefit, if they had bad experiences, of being able to process them and put them away. Some people carry them with them all the time. So trying to help people find ways to deal with that, uh, to transition from a life that's uh, grounded in a combat zone to a life that's grounded in the reality that's currently around them without making them give anything up, letting them keep the tools that they paid a high cost to develop and survive just in case it ever has to happen again. Uh, I once spoke with a couple of Vietnam era vets uh, who had served in different parts of the country, different, you know, one was Marine, one was Army, and uh, just on a whim, I said, you know, not that you would want to, but if it was absolutely necessary right now for me to put an M16A1 in your hands and put you back in your old AO, you would still be able to operate. And both of them smiled and said, well, yeah, we could. Absolutely. No, they don't want to, but yeah, they could. So you pay a high price to learn skills. Um, one of the things I like to talk about when I'm working with people for the first time is what is baseline? And, and what does that mean to the individual? I like to say that American society as a whole, you know, we're talking broad scale here because uh, you can always find exceptions. But as a whole, we don't expect to be criminal, you know, criminalized. We don't expect to miss a meal. We expect the mall to be open and have everything we want to buy and the roads to be good and we can get there. Uh, that's the baseline. From there... Some people put on some kind of a uniform. And whether you're a coastie that's going out to pull somebody off a, a sinking boat or you're going out uh, in any of the services or you're a first responder, from the academy that you go to on, your reality changes as you learn about different things in the world. When that happens, your baseline raises. What's normal for you goes up. It's different from the society that you started in. I am not a combat veteran. I do not claim that. I'm a Legion member, not a VFW member, and I understand that difference. But I would say that it is my expectation that combat veterans, it raises it to the most high level there is. And people who survive the environment and come back, you know, you have to focus sharply to deal with any of the threat levels that you encounter going up that continuum. But when you come back and your attention has been focused so acutely that's a survival mechanism that it's difficult to give up why would you want to give up something that kept you alive doesn't make sense to but what does make sense is understanding that you can keep it you can stay alive and not have to be focused like you were in the environment where you developed that skill you can save it for when you do need it for when the environment shifts we all know that PTSD is the world's best time machine. It's less than a heartbeat, and you will be right back where you were. And not in terms of a disability, but in terms of post-traumatic strength and growth, being able to conduct yourself healthily in an environment that is non-threat. And when the aberration happens and a threat environment occurs, you have skill sets that will come back. And... 
I don't demonize them. I say thank you for being the kind of guy that did what you did for as long as you did. Now you don't have to do it. You know, it's every day is not a combat zone, but if any day becomes one, you will be able to react. You're not losing. Uh, sometimes that makes uh, a good back and forth with people who have been walking patrols around their yard and their house for 40 years. And understanding that, uh, for example, their daughter wearing flip-flops is not an invitation to death and disaster because you can't run in them. So uh, I like to work with it then is identify the environment and try to normalize where folks are, you know, and accept that, okay, you're not going to be that baseline. That's not going to be your normal. But your experiences don't have to dictate an inability to function well where you're at. Does that make sense? No, it does. It makes absolute sense. And as I'm as I'm listening to you, um, you're convincing me more and more of the rightness of your position that you've been preparing for, for 30, 40 years to be the clinical mental health counselor that you are. Um, you You just, in my mind gave um, a master class on why veterans should and, and very well could transition from their service and even law enforcement, um, but transition from one form of service to another uh, as a clinical mental health counselor. Um, the idea of, of baseline, um, you have you have global experience, right? You know, even the connection of when you served in Vilsec in the 80s and I, I last was in Vilsec in the early 2000s, that connection was there, right? And so you have that global mindset. This is one thing that I've seen um, from a lot of military service members and families, right? The clerk in the bank or whatever it was, right? She immediately saw this. So you have this global perspective. Then you have a social perspective. And, and it really struck me how you said that the, the badge was a key to all the strata of society that you saw in your small town, the lowest of the lows, the highest of the highs. And then when you started your mental health career, you saw a historical perspective and, and the things that were common between a World War II veteran and a, and a, a Iraq War veteran, right? And so just, just having this breadth and depth of knowledge, um, I can't help but think it gives you um, a, a very wide and deep base from which to, to talk to the veterans. And, and even going back earlier, what you said about trying to get things done or helping people helping to get people to do things that they didn't think they could do. That's what a mental health professional, that, that's what I do with the veterans that I work with. It's a, you mentioned at the very beginning, we have a friend in common, Amy, and I'm very fortunate that Amy Oxel took me under her wing last year and has expanded my ability to work within this profession. I'm an amazing degree. Uh, she's a tremendous help to me uh, as my supervisor. Uh, I will tell you that one of the lessons that she continues to drum into my head, because sometimes I can be a little slow on the start, is that it's not up to a mental health provider to give the answers to the people that come to them. We're not a guru. We're not some, you know, sitting up on a mountain sometime with tablets or something. We, it's not us. We're there to help people find the answers that are within themselves that they're comfortable with. I like to tell people that work with me that the right answer for me may not be the right answer for you. 
and vice versa. Something that I look at and go, well, I don't, I don't know that I do it that way may be the best fit for you. And it's not, a, I'm not here to judge what you work out. My job is to help facilitate that and maybe say, okay, you keep saying this door is locked, but have you looked at this door, which is not locked? And what does that mean to you? And see if it's something that they want to pursue. And if the answer is no, if people are locked rigidly into a spot, well, okay, how do you minimize any harm that's going on in it? Can you give them just a, an objective, non-critical view of, well, this is what it kind of looks like from where I sit. How does it feel when I feed it back to you that way? And uh, sometimes you'll have a client say, well, when you say it that way, it sounds like I'm being very defensive and uh, not open. I said, well, I, did I use any words different than you used to me? Well, no. I said, well, what conclusion do you draw? You know, <laughs> it's up to you. Uh, and as long as people think that they're getting something out of it, that maybe just a chance to have you for an objective, non-judgmental soundboard to air the thoughts that have been chasing around in their head and then hear it out in the air and see somebody respond to it. I, I did some couples work at one point where I told the wife of a Vietnam veteran that I make a pretty good translator because I speak the militarese and I can help try to bridge what she wasn't getting and maybe add a couple of, you know, flares and flourishes and get an idea across that her husband was desperately trying to convey, but she didn't have an experience background that would allow her to hear it in the way that he initially presented it. And if you kind of did that, it's a sort of a post office game with three people. But when you see the light bulbs go on on the couple where all of a sudden they realize what the partner was saying or what this meant, um, that was some incredibly rewarding work. And uh, I became convinced early on uh, when I started doing my field work that uh, I am clearly at 58 years old. Uh, not going to be a candidate to go do any kind of action stuff. Uh, just a short, uh, one of the reasons I decided to retire when I did, I was leading a couple of younger officers to do an entry on a barricaded subject that we had to go do something with. And uh, both of those young officers, I had started at the academy as their firearms instructor. I was now leading them in as their patrol sergeant. And I turned around to make sure everybody was set before we went in. And I saw concern on their faces. Now, I was used to seeing concern when they were doing the job for the first time. The first time you're going someplace where people don't want you. The first time you have to step up and someone's offering to hurt you. It's, it's a game changer. Uh, this was the first time I saw concern that both of those young officers were concerned for me because I was old. I had just come back off an injury and surgery and clearly was not where I had been before I left. And they wanted to keep me safe. And I said, okay, if people are worried about keeping me safe on the job, it's time to pull the plug and walk away. I didn't want to stay too long and be a joke doing what I did. Uh, I didn't want to put anybody else at risk trying to cover me, whether I needed it or not. So I took the out and left. Uh, both those officers still serving. Both of them still seem to like it when I come around to say, hey, and have a cup of coffee. Uh, and I think I did the right thing. Uh, as a counselor... The advantage of what you talked about for, you know, having seen stuff from 
you know, heck, we, uh, we still issued 1911s to infantrymen when uh, I started. As a cop when I started, my first duty gun was a revolver. Uh, been a lot of transitions in my professional careers. Uh, that knowledge and experience, okay, I'm not going to kick doors, and I'm certainly not going to run down a suspect anymore, but I can give you some insights if that's what you're doing and you're having a hard time with some of it. Uh, a lot of toxic environments is sort of like trying to tread water in a cesspool. Um, you don't want to go under. And if you flounder too much and exhaust yourself, you will do something dumb. And uh, the people that do those inappropriate coping mechanisms because they're having such a hard time processing what they have to do, um, finding a safe way for them to process, understand, and make the determinations before they do any harm to themselves, whether it's in their drinking uh, and other personal habits. Uh, you know, how many folks come back from a combat zone and they're, they're on a motorcycle or a car uh, doing inappropriate stuff because, you know, they're just going all out because that's what they were doing. Um, I have a hard time with people who refer to some risky behavior as adrenaline junkies. Uh, I don't like the term because as a police officer, if someone was identified as an adrenaline junkie, somebody who really goofed on let's push something till it happens, that's nobody you want to work with. I'd rather spend 15 or 20 minutes talking to a guy and convincing him that he needed to get into handcuffs and go where we needed to go than five minutes getting my uniform all ripped up to drag him where he needed to go. And doing it softer, quieter, keeping the stress level down is the key to longevity for everything. My opinion. No, and and and, and again, a, a great metaphor for a, a good counseling relationship. Uh, but then even as you said, as you were emerging into uh, the mental health field, and, and we talked about this before we started, that you had had some concerns that here you are, um, you know, in nearly 30 years removed from it, what you said, there was like three uniform changes since you had, it had been in the military. Um, and you didn't think that you would... Um, be able to connect as easily to current era veterans, sort of this idea that it's all post 9-11 veterans. Um, but then you also just mentioned this idea about, you know, uh, trade, uh, treading water in a cesspool and dealing with toxicity. Um, you had mentioned that that was something that you had seen pretty constant through all of these service members, regardless of when they served. Yes. Um, if someone ingrains a negative thought or aspect, um, and they believe it to be true, even if it's not true, it is true. And it'll have that negative effect on them, and they'll carry it. Until you, they get to challenge that reality validly, that someone tells them, is that really the case? It, you know, should that have been said? Should that have been done? Um, I, I had an individual give me an absolute nightmare scenario of a cascading series of horrific events that happened to him one very bad day uh, in uh, uh, the Hobo Woods in Vietnam that uh, it, every decision he made made sense on the face of it and there was nothing that you could point at that was a wrong call and yet every one of them moved him closer and closer and closer to being completely out of control and in a state of disaster. The fact that he survived was a miracle. Uh, 
the situation when I, when I crafted training scenarios for SWAT teams, one of the things that you always make sure to do as a trainer is that the team wins. You train people to win. You do not deliberately craft a scenario to defeat them because as a trainer, you can. If I want to make a team look, I don't care if you're SEAL Team 6, you bring them to me, I can set up something that cannot be won. But that's not your job. It's not you against them. It's you for them. So you craft training to help them overcome obstacles, to grow into those obstacles. In that individual's case, I said, listen, what you just described to me, if I was training a team, I never would have done that because it was an impossible set of circumstances for you to overcome. There is no way for you to win that. So the fact that you won that is a miracle. The fact that you're still here is a miracle, and I'm glad you're here. You're not a coward. You're not useless. You did what you had to do to survive in a circumstance you never should have been in, and you continue to serve. It's all honorable and good. Let's let's go from there. And for 40-some-odd years, the guy thought he was a coward. And uh, no, not only no, but hell no. And nobody should have ever even planted that idea. So, well, you know, nobody ever told me that, but I thought they were thinking that. Well, no. No, they weren't. Because anybody who had been in your boots would have been happy to have come out of it as well as you did. We are often our own worst enemies in only seeing the negative. We tend to dwell, many people tend to dwell on their shortcomings and failures rather than their triumphs. And if you only focus on your negatives, that's all you have. And you'll miss the good that's in your life. And the, the accomplishments you should be proud of. People tend to be, oh, I don't want to brag. I don't want to think about that. And, well, no, no. Let's look at that and balance it all out. You know, nobody's perfect. Nobody does it right all the time. But nobody does it wrong all the time either. And trying to balance folks out so that they can keep their head up and not be walking around under a cloud, you know, hopefully you do them some good. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, the idea of the, the negative coping uh, that we did in the military, right? And, and of course, you had mentioned the same things about, you know, substance use and alcohol, but just this, this constant negative, we, we always say, you know, um, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And right. really all we're doing is planning for the worst. That's why I've got three AT4s and a Claymore in the back of my vehicle, right? Same thing I can imagine, not having been a law enforcement officer, but every time you go to serve a warrant, you have to think that what is this worst case scenario that's going to come up, even if it's a, you know, a misdemeanor or something like that. So there's the, and then you had mentioned even earlier about the black humor. That's something that, that is, is rampant throughout the squad bays and the, the foxholes and everything else. And, um, you know, engaged in, in a lot of it myself just to defuse. Um, and so it's not that we're in a toxic environment, but the negative, the negativity and what we call the realism that we see tends to protect us. And this even goes back to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, hypervigilance works right the way it's supposed to. And I think even Amy was the first one um, to talk to me about don't pathologize what worked in other environments. Exactly. Um, it's uh, it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a different point of view, and I'm glad that you're sitting there in the office across from a vet. Well, thank you. The um, 
you know, I had a chance to go to a seminar uh, about 15 years or so ago with a gentleman from South Korea who is like a high Dan in like five different martial arts disciplines. And he looks like somebody who should be like a waiter. You know, he, he does not reek warrior. He's a sort of shortish, rounded, sort of soft, got a good sense of humor guy because he can. Because he walks around with capabilities that are off most people's charts. He doesn't feel any need to live at the ragged edge of them. And during the seminar, the friend that had invited me down for it, we were talking, and uh, we were talking about 9-11. And I said, what would have happened if Sensei had been on one of those planes? Here's a guy that you don't look at as see as any kind of a threat. And he could disassemble the plane with his hands if he wanted to, you know. Um, it really gave me a sense of when you have capacities and you're confident in them you can allow yourself to open up to the world around you and be approachable he was one of the nicest guys i ever met long conversations a lot of meals with him uh, just a joy to converse uh but again there was once i knew him for what he was really capable of it was at the same time, like, oh, my God, this man is a dynamo. I mean, Jackie Chan could take lessons, you know, and uh, and for real. And uh, But, again, easiest guy in the world to sit down and have a cup of coffee with. Uh, it's nice when veterans, senior officers, firemen who have gone into the flames. I, I did a few burning houses before the fire department got there. They were volunteer department when I started. So a few times I was first guy on scene. Believe me, I don't like crawling in burning buildings. It's not what cops in nylon jackets should do. Uh, I got a lot of respect for the fire crews. Watching what EMS does at accident scenes, all the car crashes, the kinetic damage that got done, and seeing EMS guys working like hell, human victims, animal victims, watching them try to do CPR on a dog that's been one of the crash victims at a site because it's a family member. They want to get everybody back and it's all hands on deck and scramble to make things happen. Uh, the professions I've been exposed to the individuals, the professionals that work within them, no matter the nature of the job focus that they have has always been uplifting to me and understanding that when they bring something to you, uh, you know, somebody who has something that just they can't process, they can't get a handle on it, and it's affecting them in the now, that poisons the future. So how do you make the past go to bed? How do you process it, make friends with it, own it, put it in its proper pay place, and move on from it? Because if you don't do that, you're a prisoner to your memories. And the chains that are there are the ones that you forged yourself. Couldn't have said it better myself, Vic, and, and I don't think I have said it better myself. Um, it definitely some some great points um, and some things that that I'm going to continue to think about, um, and and definitely 
uh, continue to even to, uh, this conversation has caused me to rethink some of the veterans that I'm working with and in different ways to help them. So if, if someone's listening to this, maybe they're a veteran, they're saying, you know, hey, I'd like to talk to that guy, or maybe they're a mental health professional that wants to get a little bit of a, a wider perspective. How can people find you online? Um, through inner resource psychotherapy, working with Amy. Uh, everything comes through our front door. Uh, she parcels out and figures out uh, if her book is full, uh, is it somebody that's willing to work with me? Um, I'm willing to talk to folks if they if they want to talk to me, professional to professional. Clients in Connecticut, if you're willing to drive to Colchester, you can find us uh, right there on 392 South Main Street. We're happy to, to be there for you, and uh, we'll get you in the book. Well, I certainly appreciate that. I'll make sure that all of those, um, the, the links again to inner resource and, and directions even to your, um, your clinic there, um, are, are in the show notes. Vic, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me and, and the listeners today. Well, thanks for reaching out. I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. Uh, I had some doubts and Amy talked to me about it. Uh, she kind of gives me the prod every once in a while and said, uh, no, you should. And I said, well, okay, uh, my respects for those of you who have been carrying the torch for current conflict. Um, one of the things that was said to me by a Vietnam vet when I introduced myself to him was, uh, well, just because there wasn't a war when you served doesn't mean you didn't serve. You just served in the time you had. Uh, staring East German Gax uh, on the border was as close as it came for me. Uh, but folks weren't shooting at me. Uh, in a very different environment. I like to say that I did not pay a high cost for many of the benefits and gifts that I received from the service that I was able to render. And uh, it has continued to pay forward with what I brought to try and do leadership duties within a police department and how I see it working for doing counseling for the folks in this career. And since I don't have to kick doors or run, I'm hoping to do this for a good long time to come. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we'll be glad to have you, Vic. Thank you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. As I mentioned in the show, I really appreciated Vic's unique insights developed through his extensive experience as both a soldier and a law enforcement officer. Vic is a great example of how those who served can continue to serve in their post-military and post-law enforcement life. There were a lot of great insights in this episode, but chief among them was how we start to believe the negative stuff that we're told. Then we turn that around and use it on ourselves. A colleague of mine talks about how the negative voices in our head, although they do sound like our voice, are actually someone else's. It was put there by somebody and transformed into our own. Once we start to be aware of the fact that it's not ours and it's not beneficial, then we can start doing something about it. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST113. While you're there, share the link to the show with someone that you think might enjoy it. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests or go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. Our thanks this month go to Give an Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. Don't forget, we'll be joining them for the Week to Change Direction from June 9th through June 15th. If you want to see how you can too, go to changedirection.org. 
A week to change direction will happen anywhere and everywhere people and organizations want to be part of this change. Given Hour will provide toolkits with suggestions and ideas for how you or your organization can participate in a week to change direction, or you can create your own. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you heard made you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Be on the lookout for another great episode, and until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.